This is Marcus, your host, and today I've got on the show with us Jennifer Solberg from Quantum Improvement Consulting. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for being on. And as CEO of QIC, tell us a little bit about the exciting things you do. So we, we do a lot of stuff. This will be our 10th year in business, which is mm-hmm. exciting for me. But Long story short is if you can think about a way that humans interact with technology for human performance or learning, we play in that space. A lot of what we do is understanding user needs, designing solutions. We usually work with technology partners to build them out, but we do a lot of evaluations and assessments as well. So kind of the bookends of solution development, although we are getting a little bit more in the development space these days. We do a lot of work for the Department of Defense and the federal government. So that's where most of our revenue comes from. Which is really cool because they have the budgets to do some really cool stuff and um, push technology forward. And I like playing in that space. Also, obviously, like it's, a, it's an end user group that I care a lot about. But most of my staff have some sort of learning science background, either in human factors or instructional design. My, my degree is in experimental psychology, but that's like not really even much of what I do these days. But that's kind of a little bit about me. And now our listeners also realize why we're having you on, because this is going to be a really exciting conversation. And we normally look at hype versus reality here on the podcast. And we've had this conversation previously that um, a lot of the talk is about large language models, right? We don't even, mm-hmm. we don't even focus at the moment of what we used to call good old fashioned AI. Um, where in that field do you see the topics of the moment right now when we look at this in a more realistic way? Where are the actual use cases? What's happening around AI? And is the hype justified or maybe not? Is the hype justified? Yeah. So so we cannot talk about chat GPT if you want to. I think that's uh, that's a when most people in the L&D industry think about AI, they immediately go to chat GPT. They're so like... I was at Devlin last year. Every other session was about how to use ChatGPT for this and or how to use Dolly or MidJourney for this. And uh, those are very popular tools. And I think the interesting thing about AI being more explainable and usable by the masses is kind of changing the conversation for a lot of people. But I mean, artificial intelligence is not new and it's not going away. So, um, but if you think about the definition of artificial intelligence, really, you're just talking about Software that makes decisions, like that's really the definition of artificial intelligence is a a piece of software that is able to ingest information, make a decision about it and act on it. That's really it. So it has been a part of all of our lives for a very long time. It it will continue to. Um, So it's not like it's, oh, my God, AI just like landed on the planet. It's not like, oh, my God, it's going to go away next week. Like it's it's not. There are different applications of it. so is that hype? Like, no, it's not hype. It's been a field of study for decades. So, you know, it's not really a question of, is it worth talking about? Like it is. Yeah, but I think people care about it a lot more because they see it impacting their personal lives now or potentially impacting their personal lives. Um, and so that's why we're talking about it these days. But I mean, it's not going to take over the world next week. Like Ultron isn't a thing yet. So, so we don't really have to worry about that. I think people are coming around to that. We've had this 
big letter with all the signatories saying, let's make a stop to this. Then one of the mm-hmm. signatories, a couple of months later, just published his own version. So the right. opposite of a stop, right? Yeah. And, and all of the things we've already heard have not come true. And I think Sam Altman, was, it was recently for OpenAI who said, when GPT-4 came out, everyone was saying, oh, when we're going to lose our jobs and it's going to be awful. And right now they're complaining that the system isn't running fast enough. So how quickly does public perception change? And now that okay. everyone's dabbled a little bit in language models and in the Dalis and mid-journeys, now we're coming to our senses a little bit as in what's the, what's the real use and as things like co-pilot for business are now being rolled out. I get every, guess everyone is really diving more into the normal everyday workings with it but you're involved in and you said you work with government and they have a lot of funding you're involved in some really exciting projects what use cases are you looking at there right now on a slightly different scale than a single that one might dabble with yeah so i think one of the challenges that i always have when talking to folks in the lnd industry is taking the work that i do and making it sound like it's relevant um because you know designing e-learning courses or instructional contents is really like it's a different scale when you're talking about training service members how to do complex tasks with an awful lot of machinery and you know the the stakes are much higher and the the potential losses are catastrophic so it's a it's kind of a different scale and i feel like sometimes that gets lost but there are some issues that we deal with a lot in the defense industry that I think are more useful to talk about than to talk about what we usually talk about when we talk about artificial intelligence. So usually we talk about, oh no, it's going to plagiarize me. Oh no, it's taking all of the information off the internet and, you know, it's copyright infringement or or whatever. So that's, um, you know, we have bigger fish to fry and other things to think about, particularly when we're talking about the, is it going to take my jobs conversation? And like, some of the issues that we deal with are really not, you know, is, are we going to have a robot soldier army anytime soon? Although like I would be here for that because, you know, fewer people would probably die. And my vision is that we have our robot army and somebody else's robot army and they go to the moon and they duke it out and then whoever wins, wins. And that's like, you know, that's the, the extent of that. But it's not really that. Like we deal with situations where you have to work in collaboration with complex artificial intelligence models and understanding how the human reacts and responds in that situation as part of that relationship is really important. And I think that's the sort of thing that we're going to have to deal with in the learning and development industry as we're talking about using these tools. And it's really setting expectations for these kinds of relationships and what should you expect out of an artificial intelligence collaborator, if you will. Um, What are your expectations? What are your responsibilities? And how how does that team work together? Um, A lot of the the use cases, so there's actually one on the news this week. So just this week, uh, there was an attack on a U.S. base. There was a, a drone attack and killed at least three soldiers and wounded a whole bunch more, right? So, and that's that's in the news today. And the question that everybody's asking is, was it human error? And what appeared to have happened was an enemy drone was mistaken for an American drone. And so it was led into American airspace and then it was able to attack, right? So the question is, how did that happen, right? And whose fault is it? 
And, and that speaks to how do we feel about autonomous things engaging with us? And then really what could, what could have happened differently? So, you know, I don't know. I'm not privy to what happened on that base. I don't know. It's not there. I don't know. But I do know that, you know, um, unmanned aerial systems are definitely ways in which we use um, AI all the time. And one of the benefits of using AI is people make a lot of mistakes. And AI makes a lot of mistakes too, but people make different kinds of mistakes in different kinds of ways. And so by working together, you can mitigate some of those different kinds of mistakes. So there is a world in which there was a monitor, an airspace monitoring system that was powered by AI. There, like, that could have been the case. I don't know. There are definitely some more. And the way that these things work is you have operators who are in, in charge of monitoring the situation and targets are detected by artificial intelligence sometimes. And they're detected, monitored, tracked, et cetera. And the benefit of using the system is that fatigue and, and vigilance decrements are something that humans are, are just always going to have. We can only pay attention for so long. Yeah. Machines, on the other hand, can pay attention forever because they don't get tired. And that's a limitation that we have that they don't. So it's easy to, well, it makes sense to employ some of these systems because at the end of the day, you can be more efficient, more effective, and safer if you have AI monitoring things for you. Now, the way that this usually works is you've got one operator that's tracking a various number of targets at a time, right? So previously, if I was doing this by myself and I didn't have any automation to help me, I could only like really track one or two things because we have attention limits and there's only so many things we can track at a time. So yeah. artificial intelligence can track more than that. So it's tracking a bunch of different things. I'm managing it, right? So I'm keeping track of where everything is. Now, unlike things like ChatGPT that won't tell you necessarily when they're wrong, some of these systems will tell you. They're like, hey, um, I'm tracking, tracking this thing. I've got a little highlight on this van, let's just say. And it's going into a tunnel and then it loses it. Much like we would if we were watching, like, no one can see into this tunnel. It can't, you can't. So anyway, it pops back out the other side. It'll re-engage the target and say, hey, I think this is it. I have an X percent probability that this is it. Can you check for me? Yeah. And yeah. even a child would probably okay. think, well, it's got to come out the other side. Right. So that's a, that's a child developmental process, right? But for, for an AI, that's, that's not as straightforward when something just vanishes and there's no so to speak, explanation for why it vanished, whereas we just think, yeah, went into a Right. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, and it doesn't understand that. It just knows that there was something here. I'm looking in this area, and now it's, it's back here, right? So I think this is it. Is that right? And then the operator will engage and say yes or no, or correct it or adjust it or something like that. We're back on track over here. I'm going to go pay attention to this one over here, right? So what it's really doing is helping you expand your capability as one person, but it's not like it's doing your job for you. It's doing a different job that you would do, right? So your job is no longer, I'm going to track this one thing. It's tracking a whole bunch of different things and making decisions about the threat level or other things like that. And your job now is to manage the system, right? So it's working with you. It's collaborating with you. It's more of a, a teammate then something that I can just like put on the back burner, let it go. I'm going to go over here, get some coffee and come back. And, um, and it's going to be just fine. So 
when we talk about how we interact with artificial intelligence, I think it's important that we don't think about it as something that's just going to take work off of our plate and we never have to think about it again. But really, it's something that you're going to have to manage and you're going to have to collaborate with going forward. And from that perspective, you have to think about it as a relationship. I really like that collaborative relationship angle. It describes really well how we can work with these systems, what, what they actually do for us. Yes, there might be systems that take over entire jobs. But the really interesting stuff, right, will be a collaboration because, as you said, the system makes mistakes in areas that we humans find a little bit silly. And mm -hmm. we make mistakes that probably the system would, if it could, find a little bit silly. Is there, are there also barriers in that area? Yeah, yeah, and I think one that that we're seeing a lot of in the you know more of the, the commercial applications of AI these days has to do with trust and trust and uh, trust and automation is probably like the number one barrier to uh, to it being incorporated more and more are doing lives these days is we just don't trust the we don't trust the robots and there are a lot of reasons for that people don't like giving up control broadly. But we are a lot more tolerant of mistakes in other people than we are of anything else. So if, if you're driving a car and you get into an accident, people will forgive that. They'll say like, oh, well, he probably had a lot going on. He was tired. He was drinking his coffee, whatever. He just like went off the road. It happens all the time, right? So, but if a machine crashes a car, if a self-driving car crashes, it can't, you know, catastrophic. And like, there's no way we could ever trust these things ever to do anything. Absolutely not. Where people are actually terrible drivers and car crashes are one of the leading causes of death in this country. And so it's really not a question of whether or not it needs to be perfect, but it just needs to be better than people. Right. And there's a lot that goes into making self-driving cars work. And like, really, I hope that this is a thing that we buy into one day because it could save a lot of lives, honestly. But, um, but we, ex we tolerate that level of failure in ourselves and expect to be able to drive because we like control. But also we don't trust things that are not people, even though people make mistakes constantly, like absolutely constantly. Which is a really interesting series of chapters in Kahneman's book, second book, Noise, which mm -hmm. is one of my favorites and most recommended books probably of all time, where he talks about that we know that very simple algorithms get medical predictions for the right treatment much, much better than human doctors. But when asked which one a human would prefer, then even if faced with the numbers, everyone wants the human, there is something with this element of forgiveness in there. And there is something in there that we humans don't like about the fact that if it was wrong, we'd rather forgive a human who tried hard than an algorithm where we kind of knew they were going to get it wrong at some point. Although exactly the same logic applies to the doctor with a higher probability of getting it wrong. So something innately human is going on there when yeah. we look at that decision-making process. Yeah, there, and that's actually a, a really great example because it's the same kind of monitoring problem that we have when we're talking about um, managing unmanned aerial systems as with radiology is a great example, right? So one of the things that, that people are bad at is identifying targets in a lot of clutter. And you can do it once. Like if, if I'm looking for cancer in an x-ray or something like that, I'm, I'm a radiologist, so I'm looking for something. There is 
I could be very good at my job. I can find something that looks like cancer. But then the mistake that I will be more likely to make than not is I will not find the second one because I'll see one and I'll stop and I'll be like, done, my dad is done. I found the thing and move on. And this is like one of the most common radiological mistakes is not finding subsequent like targets that look like cancer within an x-ray because they, you know, I've already found one. I'm done with my job. Whereas machines right now are way better than people at this because they don't have that same bias. And a lot of Tversky and Kahneman's work, like even in the 70s about human biases, like actually one of the reasons that I got interested in psychology in the first place, because I thought it was hilarious that we're so stupid. Um, no, what we really truly are. Um, but yeah, that's it's another great example. And they... Their research inspired some work in the 80s and 90s looking at automating juries and, you know, informing juries about what is really the likelihood that somebody committed this crime in the first place just based on statistics. And people rejected it 100%. Nobody was into it, even though it was more right than wrong, because you want to be evaluated by a jury of your peers. And even if the jury of your peers is prone to make mistakes, you still want people to do it. So, yeah, it's a, I feel like it's something that we are going to have to get over if we actually want to get anywhere with this stuff. There's a real challenge there to, dis, to convince humanity of the progress almost. And the numbers are already there to prove how it works and how it should be done. But we're, we're catching up with our feeling of whether it's, whether mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do. One thing you also touched upon there with the collaborative spirit is there are, there are moments when the system is better and there are moments when you're better and you can divvy up that work. Right. But normally when I'm doing a job, I only have a certain amount of tasks and most of the time they're not that tasking. But if I share that with collaborator, then will my job maybe even become harder than actually easier? So, well, so if you think about, if you think about a good AI collaborator, it's kind of like an intern, right? So I think we expect it to be more like a calculator, right? So I'm punching some numbers and get the answer and then we're good to go. And I'm going to trust my calculator. My calculator is not going to make a mistake. Like I've never seen a calculator make a mistake in my entire life, but even if it did, I wouldn't know because the trust did anyways. Right. So, so like, seriously, like you, you don't question a calculator, but if you have an intern, then you have to teach the intern how to do their job, right? They don't walk in the door and knowing how to do all of the things that you want them to do. They can take things off your plate, but you have to teach it and it has to be able to talk to you about, is this what you want? Do you want this? And it needs things too. And you have to be able to recognize the things that it needs and it needs to be able to recognize the things that you need. And I think that's that kind of relationship is what we should be thinking about going forward with, you know, with AI collaborators, really. It's that kind of a situation where it's more like somebody that you have to work with and train and get used to and develop a relationship with versus out of the box, I'm going to, you know, put this down, turn it on, and it's going to be perfect. Um, I mean, even the Roomba that you have that cleans your floor, you have to set it up. Yes. They come out of the box and they're in your house. Yep. 
you know, like there, there's some groundwork that you're going to have to do here. And I think a lot of people's disillusionment with the tools that they see now is they expect it right out of the box, poop, like yeah, I'm going to type three words into this little prompt box and then get something magical is going to happen. And that's not how it goes. You have to work with that. This brings a thought that I have continuously about innovation, which is I have the feeling, maybe I'm wrong, but I have the feeling that I see more and more steamed up cars on the road on cold, rainy days than I used to, despite those cars being equipped with far better ventilation systems and air conditions than we've ever had. But people think it should do it on its own. And they may have felt like, oh, we, we've got it on off and now we're driving and we don't need it right now. So they have it on off. So the whole car steams up. There seems to be, there seems to be some of that, you know, everyday normal life thinking gets lost because we're so used to that. We get it and it should just do it. Mm -hmm. And when, when you have a certain temperature set and, and it does it, then you're just fine. But then you forget that there might be other situations where you actually have to proactively interact with it. And the same thing is exactly, I think this kind of an example, you get this, you get a vacuum and you think, well, it's, it's clever. It should be almost able to do everything. Why do I need to set it up? So there's something to be said about the human thinking starting to become a little bit too lazy and, and trusting that the machine does more, which is almost exactly counterintuitive compared to when we look at that, we don't trust the medical doctor to make a decision, although we right. have the evidence that they're much better now. Yeah. And it, it really just comes to us having un, like really unbalanced expectations of technology broadly. We were not quite used to dealing with, with things that it's black or white, right? Either it works yeah. or it doesn't work. And, and that's really how we have grown up dealing with this stuff. My calculator works or it does not work and I need to change the battery. Right. But if you think about like, I have a Nest thermostat in my house and haven't had one before. It is the biggest pain in the butt because you have to teach it like what temperature you want in your house all the time. And at first I was like, this thing does not work. But then you're like, oh no, I have to tell it what temperature I want to see it all. I see it all the time. And then it'll get smart about it and then it'll get better. But we don't expect to have to work with the things that we own and the things that we use for them to be more productive. Like we just are not, we're not really prepared for that. And we don't really know how to do it. That's the other thing is it's, that's not a skill that we have. Management is not really something that we're taught in elementary school, but it's really what it is, is managing things. You manage your intern, you have to manage your smart domestat, you have to manage smart things and dealing with things at that level is just not, not something that all of us are taught to do. I wanted to also go down a slightly different angle here. In a recent conversation, we talked about an example with communication between teams and analyzing communication and analyzing capability, which, which puts a bit of a more learning and training spin on the conversation. I'd like you to share a little bit about that example and the work you've been involved in there. Yeah, sure thing. So this is some work that we've been doing from the army for a while. So the army asked us to help them solve this problem really. And, and they had a question, which was what makes a squad good? It broadly. And that's, that's a huge question. And so there are a lot of different folks involved in answering this question. And what they asked us to do in particular was to say, all right, we've got a squad of soldiers that are going through an exercise. The squad has a leader 
and there are teams within the squad and they have leaders too. So is there something about the way that this team is talking to each other that reflects them doing a good job, very basically? And we said, okay, sure, yeah, we can figure that out. The challenge is that these guys are like in the wilderness, running around, it's noisy, there's a lot of simulated explosions happening, there's all sorts of racket in the background. And it's like, well, how are you going to capture what they say? And what if they're not supposed to say anything? So it's how do you capture that information? Like, well, I guess we're going to have to record everything we say. So we did. And then you have this issue. I feel like a lot of people have dealt with uh, similar problems too when you're dealing with transcriptions. It's a, it's a huge pain. And now a lot of technology that we have on, on Teams, you know, various other platforms can transcribe things that are being said. So we had it automatically transcribed. But then the question is, can I categorize this speech into patterns using natural language processing? And are there certain patterns that I can pull out of this? And this is really a machine learning problem. So we were able to develop an algorithm that could do that. And so we know it, of all of the cases that we could have used for this, this might have actually been one of the easiest because communication during an exercise, there's a lot of, I'm going to say something, and then there's something that you're supposed to say back to me. Right. And if you say the thing that I'm expecting, then we are communicating and that's good. If you say something else, then we have a problem. Right. So this was not the hardest example that you could possibly imagine, but it was still complicated enough. But to be able to train a model to automatically process that and categorize things for us was immensely helpful because otherwise that's somebody reading all of these transcripts and putting things into buckets. And um, and we ended up not having to do that. Now, the important thing to keep in mind is it's not like we ran the program and called it a day, right? Like you still have to check. And it's a question that we're going to have to ask increasingly in the future when we're talking about any sort of artificial um, agent is how often do we have to check to make sure it's not screwing up? Because supervised models are are used a lot in, in like computer vision and other applications like that. But as they get trained, Noise will get in there and you have to go through and check and make sure that they're not making a mistake. And if they are, you have to adjust for it. But yeah, that uh, I think that's a really good example of how using machine learning or AI can make your job a lot easier. Is things like that we should be able to look forward to in the future across the board. What do you see then as the next steps in terms of the capability of capability mapping? The, the AI capability of mapping human capability. In this, in this example, it was about communication and we were able to look at the language and decide how good the communication was and probably what role that played after overcoming the um, difficulty of getting rid of all the background chatter and noise mm -hmm. and, and everything that you have in those kind of environments. In not so much maybe the, the knowledge economy, but in, in physical jobs, where do you see the, the exciting next steps there in terms of analyzing capability and utilizing AI, both for the capability piece, as well as for the, the support of the worker as mm -hmm. the collaborator, does that go hand in hand? I think it does. And, and I guess another example from the work that we've done in the past really has to do with looking at training secular skills too. So. One of the things that every soldier has to do ever is learn how to fire a, an M4 weapon. You have to shoot a gun. And everybody has to learn how to do it. Not everybody has to do it. 
but it's not like part of everybody's job. You can go like be a cook or you could be a doctor or you'd be a lawyer. There's a million different jobs that you have, but once a year you have a qualifier with weapon. So to get people through this training and assessment as expediently as possible, it's going to help if we can tell what's wrong with you. And we can tell if you're, there are so many things that go into firing a weapon for the first time that a lot of people don't think about because either you're one of those people that's had guns in your hands since you were like two, or you're one of those people that like doesn't usually play with guns, right? But there's an aspect of learning how to do this in the first place. So you have to to understand this is how this thing works. These are the pieces, the parts, here's how you clean it, here's how it goes. And then you have to understand how to hold it. And it's kind of like, think about swinging a golf club. Like the first time you swing a golf club, you're going to go all over the place, but you don't know, okay, you have to hold your feet like this. You have to hold a club like this. You have to hold your back like this. And, and the first few times you do it, you have to think about it. Like it's a, it's not an automatic process. Yeah. And the first time you do anything like that, like your brain is working, trying to figure out how it goes. And while you're in that phase, like that early phase of skill acquisition, understanding exactly what it is that your body is doing wrong and telling you how to adjust it is really helpful, right? So if I can say, hey, one of the things that you're doing right now is breathing wonky, then this is, you know, this is how you're supposed to breathe. And so we worked on some systems that had instrumented a simulated weapon, basically, and put a variety of sensors on it so it could tell you, hey, the way that the muzzle is moving like this is telling me that you're breathing funny. Or if your shot group after you take a few shots goes down into the left, you're doing this thing wrong and weird. So being able to use algorithms like that are actually very helpful and getting you to do things better, quicker, faster. Because the alternative to that is having somebody sit there and watch you and someone who's an expert sit there and watch you and do this evaluation and then tell you what you're supposed to do next. But in this case, we have a system that will tell you what to do next. So I don't hate, I have to wait for my instructor to show up and look at me. I can go over here and do this by myself. And this thing's going to tell me on my own. And then I could practice this a cabillion times because my instructor is not exhausted with me. Right. So that's another good example of how you can do that. I do think just from like a, a normal job skills perspective, communication, going back to that example, is an, an example of a competency. And one of these competencies that people are looking for in the workplace broadly, and the Navy is actually doing some of this work right now, which is, is really fascinating, is how to automatically roll up your behavior into measures of these competencies. And, and then what do I do about it? We have a project coming up that's looking at this too. How to, to measure the various kinds of behaviors in various kinds of situations, and then what does that reflect? And then understanding that you're at this level and we want you to get to a different level, what's the intervention that I have to give you to okay. make it there? And those kinds of systems, I think we, we will see a lot of. Fascinating. I can't, wait to, I can't wait to see more use cases of that type because especially physical training, it's almost like in, in every aspect of work or, or even hobby, having having that own personal trainer with you that monitors in a lot of detail, right? What you might be doing wrong, giving advice and immediate feedback, super for learning. So very, very fascinating. And when we move that now into the knowledge economy, one thing that always has sprung to mind when looking at the, for example, Microsoft Copilot that is now supporting you in all of those applications 
but also there seems to be an element of it's watching you in all of those applications. Mm -hmm. So there's an awkward mixture of, um, it probably could get some sort of an understanding of your capability. It could also at the same time, if it watched if it's watching all your team's chats and watching everything you do and watching all your emails, it's got a pretty good idea about you as a person, data, data privacy might also come to show there's a fine line there, especially in, in the knowledge economy between being supportive and still owning your own data and your privacy. What are your thoughts in, in that area of capability mapping and performance? I wish it, I wish it knew me better. Honestly, I've seen a little bit of what Copilot can do and it's not personalized enough. And I think once it gets to that level where we really see the benefit of it and how much work it could take off of your plate, I think then we will might actually buy into it because the risk is much less than the reward at that point. Um, but now there's this whole conversation about personal data that, that we are having and one of the, the big pushbacks against things like large language models is, oh my God, it's taking all my data. It's, you know, it's taking everything that I write and uploading it to the internet, which is not how any of that works because it's not like being trained the model on everything that goes into it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> no one's training the model on your blog views. Model's already trained. Stop it. But anyway, <laughs> we talk about how we want to have control over our data. Right. And particularly in the government space, this is important because some of the data that we have is like very important. It does not need to be getting out into the wilderness. So I will say from the government's perspective, there is a government version of Copilot that's coming out this summer. And I'm very excited about it. And Microsoft would not invest all of this money without thinking about one of its biggest customers, which is the Department of Defense. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, there is a level of comfort that we're going to have to have with giving up personal data. And the interesting thing is that we say we want control over our data. We want ownership of our data. We want the, you know, we want to know where every piece of information about my entire life is, but we do obviously don't care because I use Google maps to get literally yes. everywhere. I go on Facebook and post stuff all the time. I go on Instagram and it knows where every single picture that I took was. And like, we obviously don't care because yeah. we have all of these systems, tons of information all the time. We care about it when the benefit is more than the, the perceived risk, right? And the perceived risk for most of us, at least on social media right now, is targeted marketing. Yeah. And that's the risk is you're going to get an ad for something on Instagram that you're going to want to buy. And then you're going to buy. And like, that's probably the worst thing that's going to happen to you, probably. That's one of the examples that always shocks me where I think, given how much I hear about data privacy, I'm super surprised how the alternative search engines that don't utilize your data and then give you ads and don't monitor you, how little they're being used. Given, given the uproar and the hype around, I want to own my data, I don't like this. You would think that people would be flocking to alternative search engines who are just as good probably as the other ones, but they are not successful at all. So I think, you know, when the, when the benefit outweighs the risk or the other, the other way around, there, there's a big element of human laziness right in the middle that I can't be bothered to even learn a new name for a search engine because actually the fact that I just looked for sneakers 
you know, the system, the system can know that and then give me some ads. But of course, over time, it'll know all the things I like. Right. And, you know, all of my passwords are on Chrome. I can't possibly migrate over to something else. But, you know, the, the thing that's frustrating to me personally, like I'm not personally attached to my data. I'm attached to my bank account number. I would not like somebody to get that. Um, but even if they did, I'm pretty sure my bank would be able to help me solve that problem. Yeah. Like I've had my credit card stolen before and I was actually in the, uh, there was, there was a, a big leak a few years ago of government employee information, like a huge leak that China apparently stole a cabillion people's personal data. I was one of them and nothing happened. And if it, the thing is like the government had all sorts of information on me because I worked for the army at the time. So they had like my blood type, they had like my fingerprints, of course, they yeah. all sorts of stuff. Because the intent is if I were kidnapped somewhere and they found my body, they'd want to be able to identify me, right? So like they had that level of information. And I was like, you know, if they want to clone me, go for it. Knock yourself, <laughs> see how that works out for you, right? Like one's probably enough, but if you really want another one, have fun. He's just yeah. you, right? Um, but yeah, like nothing, nothing happened. And it, the likelihood of one person being impacted is far different than the whole group of people being impacted. And I think one of the things that is disappointing to me is that there is so much good that all of this technology could do for so many people, particularly when we're talking about things like, honestly, like child GPT. Because it could help people function in jobs that they ordinarily can't for a variety of reasons. But we can't get past ourselves enough and say like, oh, but my data, my data, this. Yeah, but you could actually help someone who couldn't have a job otherwise have one. Is that as important as having your blog post ripped off? No, it's it's way more important. Like, get over yourself. It, but we can't see the, the forest through the trees in a lot of ways. And I feel like we're holding ourselves back because of this idea that we want control over things that we put into the internet voluntarily. And if you care that much, don't play the game. Do that really. Yeah, but we all play the game. Yeah. So, but there, there are always going to be risks. There are always going to be bad actors. There's always going to be people hacking everything. And, and I think that's a great segment is talking about Taylor Swift. Well, we've had some news recently. Exactly. We've had the, the deep fakes conversation surface. This podcast will be had, um, just two weeks after we're, we're recording it today. So if you see references to last week or yesterday, like earlier than just so, you know, when we recorded this one, it was on the 30th of January, but yes, tell us a little bit about your view on deep fakes and all those other things that AI could play a role in. Yeah, well, so you asked an interesting question this morning um, on LinkedIn, which is who's how, as tech companies, how are we responsible for bad behavior using AI? Like, what can we do or what is our responsibility when stuff like this happens, mm -hmm. right? And the reason that we're talking about it this week for posterity, anybody listening in the future, just so you know, the reason that we're talking about this is somebody made a whole bunch of deep fake porn Taylor Swift and put it on the internet. And the Swifties went completely psychotic. And the interesting thing about it is that we're talking about it because it happened to Taylor Swift. And Taylor Swift is like the, probably one of the most important people in the country right now. Like, let's be real. She's dominating the football. She's dominating with the tour. She's dominating Ticketmaster. She's basically dominating the entire news cycle at all times. And I'm here for it because I'm a Swiftie. 
But even I am getting exhausted with all the Taylor Swift news that's coming out. But this is, you know, this is uh, relevant because this is certainly not the first person that this has ever happened to. And this is certainly not going to be the last person that it goes out to. Now, the, there are a couple of interesting nuances about it. So deep fakes of Taylor Swift have been happening since the beginning of all of this technology started coming out. The minute that MidJourney came out, deep fakes of Taylor Swift. And mostly it's their food. It's her food. So that we had fake album covers. We had like TikToks with fake AI Taylor Swift voices. Like Taylor Swift is one of the people who has been deep faked probably more than anybody in the world because she's so popular. And her fans usually do this. And I was impressed like as someone who dabbles in the Swiftyverse a little bit, like jumping on a Taylor Swift Discord and be like, holy crap, you got like, you teenagers are really good at this. And, you know, all these kids are like, oh, here's like my version of this album cover. And you're like, I don't. But, you know, these these guys are really good at this stuff. And nobody minds when it's for the forces of good, but when it's for the forces of evil, we have a problem. And it's kind of, you know, I think we all learned a few years ago that, like, you can kill somebody with eye drops by putting eye drops in their drink. And the question is, should none of us have eye drops because somebody did that once upon a time, right? And who do we hold responsible? So, obviously... You know, in this case, somebody made a bunch of deep fake pictures of Taylor Swift. Somebody put them on Twitter and a bunch of people shared them on Twitter. And so the question is, in that chain, who's responsible? Is the company that made the AI software responsible? Is the eyedrop company responsible if somebody takes their eyedrops and poisons somebody? Like, mm-hmm. none of it's trash. Uh, like, should none of us be able to have eyedrops? Mm, no, eye drops tend to do a lot of good for a lot of people right now, right? Yeah, so. like we kind of need them. And so, like, you know, can you go after the person that made them? That seems to be like the person who's responsible for it. Yeah. So, I think the and then the question is: Is Elon Musk responsible for Taylor Swift deep fake AI porn? And that is the headline of the century. Like, what is, what in the world sentence is is Elon Musk? responsible right because they didn't do anything to shut it down and are they responsible for what is should be moderated on their website i think that's a question that is it's a bigger question i think there's Mm -hmm. responsibility for it obviously but but we all know that all social media platforms are terrible at policing themselves does that mean we shouldn't have twitter I, i don't know but should you go after the people who did it and the people who Shared it, for sure. And I think that when you're talking about what should big tech do about it, now this becomes a different kind of problem. So as an employer, if one of my employees does this on my computer, on my time, then am I responsible as their boss? And so I think that's a question for you. That's a really difficult one. Right. So you didn't sanction this. Right? It was not part of their job description. No, of course not. You you gave them the means to do it. It was on their time. It was on your network, technically speaking. Like, are you responsible if they did that? And I do think what big tech companies will see, because the way that the United States deals with this is with insurance. So I think tech companies will eventually have to have insurance for this. Yeah. I think that is definitely one of the regulators that is the most natural and the most 
quick reacting. We've got so much innovation coming at such fast speeds. The, the regulatory space is, is too overwhelmed, right? And the insurance space is possibly one of the best things we might be able to turn to. Totally agree on that one. One, one more interesting thought that I've been having at the start of all this generative AI tools coming out, I had more the impression that we were slowly getting better with the terms and conditions and the, and the use policies that were coming with them. And I kept telling my clients, yeah, you, you read them. It, it, it guarantees you the data privacy that you're looking for. And it's, it's all more in line with how it should be now and your stuff won't be shared. So that was moving in the right direction. Recently, I'm seeing like the opposite happening again. Big image creation companies are saying in their use policy that it's the user's fault if they make an image and break copyright rules. So if you asked for the most, the best example I've seen again and again is if you ask for an Italian plumber with a mustache in overalls and a red cap, and it happens to look exactly like Super Mario, exactly in one of the scenes, then that's you as the user. You should have known that this is now a copyright image. And, but what if it's my mum who doesn't know Super Mario, who for some reason copy and pasted the prompt from somewhere or whatever. It's a very, it's a very difficult thing to point that at the, at the user. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect is, well, if it, if it produces the image exactly how it was in the video game in that scene, and if it produces a, a Marvel superhero exactly in the way that they appear in that scene in the film, well, you can't tell us you didn't train the system on the film. So I think, I think instead of the user conversation, one of the things that I find interesting still to follow is, will we have a proper look at what data did you use to train? Because if you're, if you're regenerating an exact moment from the film, then it, it becomes very, very unlikely that you didn't use the film to train the model. That's... Well, except I, I do think we also overestimate our creativity. Right. So people really do. And they're like, oh, I thought of that first. Yeah. Well, probably so did a million other people. And, and I have tried using a variety of, um, of AI art tools to make a picture of Taylor Swift because I'm a Taylor Swift fan. And that violates the terms of some of them. And we'll tell you, I can't make this picture because you asked for Taylor Swift. And I said, okay, can you make a picture of a 511? woman with blonde hair down to here and bangs and blue eyes wearing this on the stage in this town but like if you work out enough they showed the picture to somebody else i was like who's that they're like taylor swift i was like okay thank you so if you if you try hard enough you can no matter what yeah. right like if you iterated on, on it enough you can and like i said swifties have been doing this since the beginning of time well not the beginning of time but like a long time yeah and no one's up in arms about it because of the intent behind it Right. Like no one's trying to hurt her. And this is, you know, I think one of the, the issues that we have with all kinds of technology now is that it can be weaponized very quickly and it gets to the intent of like, what are you trying to get at by doing this? Like, are you trying yeah. to do this to hurt somebody else? But if you think about it, like deep fakes or Photoshopping has been around forever and ever. Yeah. Um, and we haven't really seen this issue. But we do have issues with things like revenge porn and being able to put 
you know, unflattering images of other people on the internet against their will, like that's a, it's a big problem. But the laws behind that are still relatively new. Like it, revenge porn laws haven't even been in effect for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like actually more than five years in a lot of cases. So it's really as of 2021 or so that most of the states have some sort of legislation against doing that. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, we need to take a look at is what's the intent behind doing this? Do you mean to rip somebody off? And again, if you look at that data, like what did you use to train this? Why did you do this? Then that kind of gets at that. Yeah. And the and the child protection issue around the internet and images, that has been something for for very long. And right. that is also not an issue that we could define as solved, right? But I in in summary, I would say what what I'm really taking from this conversation, something I'm gonna I'm gonna be thinking more about is the is the angle of saying the insurance. You think that's um, that's the way you're going to have to deal with it? Because the way that any if any of your employees does anything stupid, you have to have insurance to cover it. You have errors in emission insurance. I remember one time we had, um, I got a phone call from a couple of people on my team and they were in the field and they were like, hey, guess what? Uh, We got a big rattlesnake. And they like sent me this video of this ginormous, they're in Mississippi. And like, here's this huge rattlesnake. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. I was like, well, stay away from it, one. And then they're like, we need rattlesnake boots. And I'm like, that's not actually what we need. And so we called our insurance company. We're like, ah, is there like rattlesnake insurance? And they're like, oh, we're dropping you is exactly what happened. So like, you know, that's situations like that, that you really only have to think about when something outrageous happens. But I think that is going to be something that companies have to think about because you can put guardrails on stuff all day long because that's mm-hmm. the, the obvious answer is, well, just make it so it doesn't do that in the first place. But like I said, if I described you, which would perfectly. You'll get a perfect. Don't say her name. I can get a picture with an awful lot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm also conscious of time, but this has been a a brilliant conversation. I've really enjoyed that. I hope the listeners have also enjoyed it. We'll obviously be sharing links like your social media links, et cetera, on the podcast as well, so that people can follow you and we can stay up to date with what's happening with some of the projects that you've been describing. Looking forward to all that progress with AI as the collaborator and the collaborative relationship between humans and AI, as well as with regard to analyzing communication and analyzing capability. And of course, all the social media hype, whether it's the Swifties or what else is going on that is bad around AI, will will automatically stay on top of that. Yep, sounds good. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, Jennifer. Thank you very much for being on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. You have a good day. You too. Bye now.